Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt podcast, episode 016. This is a, this is a conversation with Mr. Wesley Shantz, and um, he's a friend from graduate school in St. John's, has a master's degree from there. He's also, um, what sort of scholar are you again, Wes? Hey, hi, Alex. Hey, I'm, uh, I, I got my undergrad in uh, Spanish, uh-huh. uh, studied in Spain on uh, Granada. And uh, after that, I, I uh, did some things in uh, in Boston, teaching in um, an elementary school there. I don't know if that counts as scholarship, but I certainly learned a lot. And then I uh, taught English in Uruguay, uh, Fulbright, Fulbright, if that's what you're thinking of. Yes, that was yeah. what I was thinking of. Yeah. Good. And you were a teacher down in Arizona for four years before you moved uh-huh. up to Washington? Yeah. yeah, I've got this. Uh, I've got this idea that I'm going to write at some point a... Uh, uh, a book that's going to be about those four years in the desert, and it's going to be kind of uh, answering, you know, C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, because that's something everyone liked to talk about there. And I haven't yet read it, so I'm I'm waiting to read the book, and then when I read the book, I'll I'll write my my answer to it. I really love that. Maybe we'll have a chance to uh, maybe we can do a podcast and read that together and give. Uh you know, twin analyses or something like that. There's, there's so much, there's so much to read and so much to, to write and do. And so I'm really glad, you know, while I was there, I remember when you would, you would talk about trying to get people from St. John's together to, to write stuff and to talk and to continue that conversation. Once we, once we left St. John's and this is, you know, I'm sure people can relate to once you leave college or leave grad school and you're trying to, you know, start life and you miss all those things that were, uh, you know, such so, such a big part of your life when you were living the the scholarly uh, existence, um, right? Major subroutines. So now, now that you've actually done it, it's wonderful, right? I mean, it seems like it's going pretty well. Yeah, so I'm well, happy to, to get to talk to you here, and uh, interested to see where this goes. Well, you know, it's so funny because um, you know, there's that quote that's if you look around the room and you don't see the person you want to see, then it might be you. And I, I mean, honestly, when I first started teaching the great books and teaching Homer and Virgil and uh, Dante and and I and I was looking for resources and looking. Well, for one, it was hard to find good resources that were interesting, especially Mm -hmm. for the Iliad and the Aeneid. They're just not as popular as the Odyssey. The Odyssey is a lot easier to find materials on. But um, uh, finding a community of people, too, who was interested in these materials was 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 hard but also very possible which was interesting because i i had parent seminars my first few years as a teacher and they started getting pretty popular we get 10 15 people to come talk about the iliad and the odyssey and even to read the iliad and the odyssey i think it's pretty impressive for you know people who are parents which means they don't have much time um and they were interested and well that meant a lot and the school at, at which i teach is really into the idea of the great books and that's really cool as well um, and so eventually five years in, it turns out that I've been studying these books the last five years and it's, I just feel like it's time to share the message with a wider audience. Well, I, yeah, so I'm interested in, for one thing, the, the parents and how they, how they uh, approach the books and, and how your experience with that has been. I, you know, in, uh, in the schools in, in Phoenix, uh, we had a community seminar sort of open to the community. But in practice, it was mostly teachers who would end up mm-hmm. going. Occasionally, a student would go. Occasionally, a parent would go. And so, and sometimes the teachers were parents. And so it was a little bit of, you know, right. crossing that. But um, 
but they were, you know, wonderful and all, but I, I always kind of wondered why more parents didn't show up. And I'm so, I'm so sort of curious. And now in Spokane where I'm living now. So um, my fiance and I, we've started a, a community reading group and we meet in the library and we read great books, but we don't have much attendance. Like it's a, it's a few friends, you know, right. people we invite personally that show up. So, and I, I just think, uh, maybe it does take that kind of bigger personality to be that person in the room who says, Hey, you know, let's talk about this thing. And then everyone well, wants to talk about it turns out. So, well, you definitely have to be a major anomaly. I would say yeah. you have to stand out. And because I think to some extent people are attracted to that, like you're saying the notion of the personality uh, more than the book itself. However, yeah. Yeah. I think the book offers the hook that you can put that personality or that charisma on because most people wish they had read most of the great books at some point, but wow. never found the time or inclination to. So it's a really great excuse to do a really great thing for yourself. And especially if the personality at the seminar delivers, if they say some interesting stuff, they get you thinking, you feel like you're in a new space, you're experiencing novelty for the first time. You're, I mean, Thinking itself might be novelty for you, uh, depending on how routine your life is, right? Because you might have it so dialed in that, no, that you're not even, you know, you're not considering new ideas very frequently. Well, to, you're, you're, I think you're onto something there because, well, that's the experience of, of thinking for me whenever I have a new, a really new idea, which is maybe not that often, really. Right? Um, like, I don't know if you remember. So in the in the beginning of Crime and Punishment, which is one of the books that that we got to teach at my old school. Very cool. Uh, in tenth, we grade, teach the Brothers K. Yeah, yeah, that one too. But so early on, it says something about how Raskolnikov uh, he wants to have a new thought. You know, he's hmm. he's he wants to say a new word. I think is the way that it's 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 put most of the time. And and it's like the gravity of that, right? Like maybe at first. It doesn't seem like so much to say, yeah, thinking a thought or having a new thought. But but whenever you do actually have a thought, like it's a very powerful experience. It really it's magnetic. It's absolutely yeah. magnetic. And in fact, I think that's probably what the great personality actually is. Somebody who's uh -huh. thinking and having so many thoughts that they're attracting new thoughts around them. And so that by the <laughs> they're probably subject to the Pareto distribution, which we know okay. about. <laughs> which suggests that the positive loops that create, you know, uh, once right, you start right. having those good thoughts, you then attract people with good thoughts around you, start exchanging those sorts of thoughts with them and boom, you're, it's like an intellectual community. And wow, now you're the people having all the thoughts and you know, that's Silicon Valley right now it's for exciting, technology. Yeah. And, yeah. Bitcoin, yeah, and yeah, per, perhaps, perhaps San Diego soon for the great books. <laughs> so now I, I just think that there's, to, to to i mean we got to say like the the person that sort of inspired a lot of this immediately here this podcast thing right is jordan peterson absolutely you, you put me on to listening to him and i've been listening you know to most of what i think he's got a, as his main sort of podcast stream at this point and it's it's fascinating and uh you know, now I know words like the Pareto distribution, but more importantly, I think it's not so much just the ideas, but like you're saying, it's this kind of sense of, uh, you know, getting in, in touch with something, which is. Well, I feel you know, like what we've experienced in culture that I almost everybody would agree with is some form a stultification of the creative. Mm -hmm. We're all arguing and criticizing all the time. I would say 
almost predominantly because we're not having good enough new creative product. Why? How much of of that is just, you know, dissatisfaction with the things that we're told are going to make us happy. Right. And he's, he's really harsh on happiness. And I think that's probably justified because, you know, things like, you know, they end up just distracting you all the things that are supposed to give you joy. And so you got to find joy somewhere that's, that's not immediately obvious, but, um, but it's certainly there if you look. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have two streams on that. I would say that on the one hand, I think our creators need to create better things. And there are, I mean, there's certainly really good things starting to come out uh, visually in terms of like, say HBO and Netflix and stuff like that. But yeah, but it's, um, I don't know. It's as if we have to create more meaning now because that's what we're all hungry for. You don't become critical as a people when you have a shared endeavor, when you have a shared sense of meaning, because um, you don't have time for it. You have to work, you have things to do. And, you know, there are minor criticisms here and there, but it seems like the major, the major thrust of the youthful voice is a resentful and critical Mm -hmm. voice of not only of everything really of the status (laughs) quo of, and, and it's interesting too, because what it's led by people who've contributed the least amount to the culture that they criticize. Um, and who feel the most oppressed by it, which is, you know, it's ridiculous. Something I do with my students is I make them look at everything in their room. And maybe you could even do that right now. It's like, what in your room was not made by someone, not you. (laughs) And, and it, and I mean, even if you look at the insides, it's like, man, the room itself, architect, construction worker, what about the electricity within that works all the time? What about the plumbing? Do you know how to deal with that? Uh, in a sophisticated way, could you go down into the sewer and deal with it? It's like because there are people, there are people that do that and they do that effectively, and you don't even know about them. And so it's like, oh yeah, no, it's coming from such an oversimplified view of who we are as a people that is ridiculous. Well, the that's a perennial issue, right? I mean, it's I think what's new about it is that the kids get to they get a hold of each other in all these ways, and they're never really able to think for them like they never did think for themselves in the past right they always right in in their little worlds but but now it's it's somehow a lot more visceral like everybody's got a walkie-talkie and it's a kid's world wow that's good they're always on the screen and they're always well and i don't know you it's it's it opens up new creative possibilities too because you you can learn to code and you can make video games you can make videos of yourself playing video games and how cool is that and that's great podcast, but, but man, the more things that there are out there, and this goes back to the fate, uh, is it, which one is it? The discussion in Phaedrus, is it about writing uh, uh-huh. Plato and, and, and he's got Socrates talking to Phaedrus and he's got the speech in his pocket, right. That he's got written yes. down. Yes. And like, you know, very proud of the speech or something, but Socrates is implying, I guess, pretty strongly that, that with every new, you know, gain in creativity and creative power through technology, you're bound to, to run out a little bit of, of what's innate, you know, in your, your makeup and your, your ability to remember in, in speech. And, and so I think it's fascinating, too, that it comes back around because with podcasts, the, 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 the human voice has, has a new reach, too. So it's sort of I think that's that's really the the interesting thing about the the new creative modes is that they, they revive old ones, right? Video games that are yes. really, that yes, they're abstractions that, 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 built on top. 
Mm-hmm. And they do yeah. something new with it. And that's because yeah. so whereas technology in an intermediary stage might have kept us from being with each other by texting, even when we're in the same room, it now connects <laughs> us in a major way because you and I are friends living in different states, you in Washington, me in California, yeah. and we can have a genuine conversation with each other via the podcast that we can then share with our friends who will probably have their, their own thoughts about what we say. <laughs> I hope so. Well, so that's, I mean, I'm curious because I, I haven't done it yet, but I've been meaning to, you know, try making podcasts or videos or something just to try that. But, but I, how do you feel about, what does it do to your, to your, your writing, for example? Cause I, I'm, I'm pretty keen on writing too, but every time I sit down to write now there's this other little voice, you know, one extra thing besides checking email, besides checking the phone. Now it's like, oh, maybe this is the day that I'll actually sit down and make a podcast. And so it's just like I lose I lose the thread a lot of times when I'm, you know, I'll start doing one thing and then I'll I'll pick up something else and I'll start doing that instead. And, you know, and then I never finish anything. So I'm I'm impressed that you've been able to start, you know, putting out all these podcasts. But so what is it, if I might ask, like, what is it that you've had to give up now to to make the time for this and to make the space to to focus on this new project? Well, frankly speaking about my writing, I would say that all my writing until now has been false writing. It's been ego-based. I believe now I can represent the self to some degree. And whatever I write from now on will be in my true voice, uh, my adult voice. Everything that came before was written by a boy. So um, we'll see. But I think what's going to happen when I do write, which is now what happens when I speak, is I'm going to write what the truth is so far as I can see it. And I, without posturing and without um, youthful arrogance and without a resentment against my audience, mm. I now am a teacher. And so what I do is teach. And so it's for me to illuminate through yeah. my voice and through my speech. And that is 100% my function in this world. So mm. that's what's going to come through, I think. Um, is podcasting... So yes, yeah, because they're... They're both my voice, and gotcha. now they both represent my voice correctly. Because when you know what I think people hate about writing is that they feel it's a poor representation of themselves, and they've practiced speaking so much more that they've yeah. forgotten that they had to practice so much in order to make it such a good representation of themselves. And in fact, any skill that you acquire that you become very good at is an excellent representation of the being that lies beneath you, and that's why people like to be associated with the things they're really good at and not the things they're really bad at. And so with writing, I think what often mm. happens with people is they don't develop the skill to a high enough level to feel it represents them correctly. So they're constantly frustrated when they're trying to represent themselves through oh, it. And, yeah. and I think with my youthful writing, Oh, go on. Sorry. No, but that's, that's postmodernism's insight as well, right? Like the, the angst in a way or the, or the, the amusement that comes over you when you when you realize that you know what you're writing is is contained um, only in these words and these words are trying to get at these images and these ideas but they never quite capture them right and so maybe the whole process is just fraught and you might as well abandon it but you must go on because you've identified it with yourself and so there's this great this great postmodern angst in in, in what you see in some of the writing but it also I think it also opens up some incredible avenues of of kind of humor and and creativity but but that's beside the point sorry i, I just had to, to it's throw okay that in there 
It's okay. Let's let's segue really quickly to some of the symbols we wanted to talk about because that was something okay. really exciting that I wanted to do with you because your questions were so well founded that you just came uh, that you just you know that came to you and the things you said were so interesting that I just immediately had to respond to them because they you made me think and uh, so I wanted to share first with the listeners something we were talking about before we got on air. We had a little five minute tete a tete first. And I was sharing this idea that I had just had today. So I teach Dante's Paradiso. And so I'm, my life is wedded to biblical imagery, um, which is very interesting because it, it wasn't like that growing up. And, but now it is. And so I had the notion today in conjunction with listening to something about uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, that what the story of Adam and Eve within Eden might well represent is the experience of man becoming conscious Mm -hmm. and therefore losing his group identity and being therefore isolated from the group. And because, well, why because, because, because I'm losing his group identity and becoming an individual his true nature shows through what is true nature. His true nature is that he's an information gatherer. And that's why eating a fruit made him conscious. We didn't know it would make him conscious beforehand because the only way you could be conscious of the fact that you'd become conscious is you would have to have been conscious in the first place, which, well, he wasn't. And so yeah. in, on, being, in being uh, exiled from his original home of Eden, man has to do what he has to work what does that mean well that means that he has to what is the proper work of man as a now conscious individual what's to acquire new information well why would a conscious individual come about amongst a group of unconscious individuals all identified together well that's easy such a group of unconscious individuals without thinking for themselves can't make adjustments they don't have the power of athena amongst them they don't have an odysseus to help guide them. They just have an Agamemnon and we all know that won't work. So what does the conscious individual do while outside the group identity that acquire new information, anomalous information, endure threat, the dragon in order to get the gold. And then what's he have to do? Well, the same thing. The man who leaves the cave of Plato has to, he has to come back in and boom, enrich the community with new information. And how does it enrich the community? It starts to create new individuals be, by bringing people to consciousness. And boom, who's doing that right now? Jordan B. Peterson. And boom, who's going to join him? Us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so this is the interesting dialectic of it all, right? This movement, right? You've got, you've got the individual who has something new to say, and he's by that very- Using the token. logos, saying what he sees, and therefore becoming valuable just by expressing what he sees. It's yeah. incredible. That's Stalk all you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but by that token, right, he sort of fractures the established, what you call the group. You know, the group is no longer as, as, as the group blindly. transforms as he transforms. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, but by that same process, you've, you've got this, this new group that's forming, right? Of people who are onto this, this thing. And it's, and so it's new, but it's also old, right? It's, it's a, it's a kind of a cyclical process. That's right. That's right. And you can even see that at work in the Iliad um, uh-huh. because it's all these peoples, these, these Achaeans who are actually different tribes of people from Argos, from Sparta, from Thesprosia, from Ithaca, from all over. 
And what do they do? They sort of transform into a nation state in order to uh, deal with a superordinate goal of fighting against the Trojans. And in so doing, they're all transformed because they've never organized in that way before or behaved in that way before. And so it totally transforms their way of life. And I think that's how we work, except for we don't, we are now at a level of abstraction where we don't even need to change our behaviors, but we can change our maps of meaning or our belief systems by means of thought. We can actually change our entire lives if, mm. if capable by altering our consciousnesses, by adding additional information in, which thus expands our maps of reality, which we can do now without even moving. Well, yeah, and it's but that is action, right? Like we do right. so much through, through these. Uh, these Abstraction meetings. is action now. I think that I well, I think that's clearly true. That 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 would I think sort of prove the notion of the unmoved mover because that's obviously what's happening uh, and, within us. It must be said too that that uh, you know this this does have big ramifications though. Like, I mean, just taking a, a kind of uh, extreme example, right? There's such a thing now as cyberbullying. So you sure you don't ever you don't ever have to like push the kid around or get in their face to be a bully, and and you know on the other hand you don't ever have to meet your oppressor to say that you're oppressed. And and so there is something too. I think for all that you know you want to draw a distinction between harm and speech and and all this and that. Well, I mean I think it must be. It must be that there's something to that. And so I, I, I get a little bit impatient with, with Peterson uh, when he, you know, far be it for me to, to take him on, but I think that there's something to be said for, for the postmodern approach and for the, uh, the, the, the people who, who feel the need for safety. And th there is something really there. And so I want to push back on that a little bit because I know, I know you're very much into the, uh, into that discussion. Um, and so well, one thing I wanted to ask about that was uh, for, to take it on a, a little bit, you know, more abstract level, not so close to home maybe, but so what is the connection between, between the great stories of say the, the Greeks, um, the people we call the Greeks, right. As, as you point out, but so, you know, the Homeric stories and the, and the mythology of that, of that Mediterranean world, how does that really map onto how does that really translate uh you know on a deeper maybe symbolic level how does it jive with um you know say uh say the the judeo-christian myths or another mythology you know mythology from somewhere else say say you know i've been reading beowulf a lot lately so so how does it go with the norse myths and and the nordic you know the germanic how does it go with uh, i mean maybe this is just asking too many too many questions in a row but i think <laughs> clear right how how does how does one get to say with such with such certainty because I, I don't deny that there's clarity and power in what's said but but i i think there's got to be room for doubt too about you know how much these stories all are telling the same story how much you know you can you can really access that truth, and I think that's where the postmoderns, you know, they have a, a pretty good point. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. I um, you know, I think of the stars in the sky, and they're they're all the same at one level of analysis because they're all stars and they shine light. Mm -hmm. But another level of analysis, obviously, they have their own individual existences and possibly their own. Uh, 
planets orbiting about them and their own relationships to other stars and other asteroids in, in their particular galaxies. And so at, at one point, I think it's a level of analysis uh, issue because at one level of analysis, sure, all mythology is the same in that it tells the most useful information that humans have ever acquired and continues to do that repeatedly because humans should never forget anything that exists in their myths. Mm-hmm. But of course, they're all very rich and individual and of themselves. You know, there's actually an issue that's picked up by Dante in the Paradiso, I think very beautifully. Um, I gotta confess I haven't read that one yet, so that's on my list. But well, yeah, don't it. worry, I'm not going to spoil it for you. But maybe I maybe I can give you a frame of reference through which to enjoy it with even greater pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Something that you'll notice in the Paradiso is the flux between ones, which are twos, and oh. that there will be a constant always drawn, so that something can perform above it. Because when you have a constant, then you can actually see movement next to it. And so when something is constant and always present, you can see the thing that moves for what it really is. And of course, that which is always constant in the Paradiso is God's will. What does that allow for? Man to see himself for what he really is, which is the most beautiful gift that a man can have, because what does that mean? That means man has self-reflection. And boom, there's the logos again, and let there be light. And so that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's Dante. And so... What he does is he shows that humans can embody certain types. And in the way that they embody them, they follow certain general rules. So there's one level of analysis, right? Boom, you're a teacher. The role. So insofar as I'm a teacher, I follow the role of, say, Plato, Aristotle, Carl Jung, Gordon B. Peterson, Socrates. And we all look different and we speak different languages. And I'm a different religion. For many of them, I'm a different ethnic. Many of them, I come from a different time. I wear different clothes. I have different friends. I have different technology. All those things are different. However, we do share certain fundamental principles, and I would say our same inner Gaia and intelikea, or rather telos. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. end is the same, which is to cause maximum or best adaptation to the situation for this moment. How do we do that? Boom, shining a light and developing new minds. Because new minds are the things that make for maximal adaptation in the moment, um, which is what Athena represents and why she's always with Odysseus. Yeah, okay. I, I'm curious. Okay. Also, so to go back to the uh, – I, I, like I like the Dante. I mean, he – clearly he represents a beautiful synthesis of the Mediterranean – and the uh, Christian. Yes. And Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't close that point, but he, yeah. So the individuals who say occupy the just rulers, you find them from the Hebrew David, Mm -hmm. you find them from the Roman tradition. You find, uh, you find even, you find Trajan in there. You find also even a mythological character from, uh, from uh, the Aeneid, uh, Riffius Mm -hmm. or Riffius. And uh, which I, I, I will argue when I, lecture on this and i tell my students is potentially dante saying that virgil did make it into heaven because what is a an epic poet more than his ideas and his character oh, his true. character is in heaven that's the greatest representation of him possible even that's better true. even better than his body yeah 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 so the personality is in itself uh 
uh, kind of bifurcated. So one that's also yes. two things. Yes, right? it is universal in that it shines true light out from it, but it is also 100% individual because it is stamped completely with its time and everything that uh, makes it unique. Because you might say that it's how Jordan Peterson talks about the King Arthur myth, where each one of the knights goes into the forest oh, right, right, right. darkest to him. Well, that's exactly how an individual leaves Eden. They all leave yeah. different places and acquire new information. There's so much new information though. They, <laughs> you can't possibly ever be exactly like somebody. If you figure out one new thing, right. it, right. it's the dark it, wood. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you like Camus makes this point in the stranger, right? That while, while the main character, the protagonist, is sitting in his jail cell, he thinks about how if you just had one day of life ever, you would have enough mm. to think about for all eternity. And, well, you could probably even extend that to if you were sitting in one room ever, you could have <laughs> infinite amounts of things to think about. And um, okay. so, you know, the fact that personalities are both universal and individual on the one uh, or on the one hand makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. No, so the um... – so one thing that just made me think of, you said, sitting in the room, right, and coming back to uh, something else that was a project of, of, of ours at one point. I, I got a hold of that book, that Solzhenitsyn book you recommended, Under the Rubble. Yes. yes. I, got, I, got I, I just got my copy back. I got it through Interlibrary Loan, which is awesome, and most libraries participate. And so those listeners, right, who, you know, hear people talk about all these books, well, like, you know, you can go and read those books. Like you can get a hold of them there, you know, not, if not yeah. the internet, which has got pretty much everything, then if you like to have a physical copy, you know, that can be arranged too. And, and so I think it's pretty important to, you know, actually read these things for yourselves and get, you know, into the, into the close reading of it. That you're, and so I, I got that copy and it made me think immediately uh, when I was reading, I just read like the foreword or something of, of notes from underground, right. Of, of underground man and him, yeah. you know, sitting in his room, you know, brooding and and just how fascinating it is to you, you can go one of two ways with that right you can become so stuck in your own dark wood and and never come out of it yes or you can you know you can find some way yes. to, to exercise your truth in the world yes. you know that is the right metaphor Wes, that is the right metaphor because that's what happened. Because that's what happened to Dante when his world disappeared when he got exiled from Florence and figured, and you know, lost his family, which couldn't go with him, his wife and his children, um, and all his political aspirations gone forever. And well, what is what restored him? Boom, the epic poem that he wrote instead. And it's like, dang, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying that the biggest things in his life were taken from him, but it made room for him to make something even greater. And you know, that's something that Carl Jung actually explicitly says about uh, building his tower in Bullingen. He built a tower called the tower uh, out of stone. And it, it was like a medieval structure. So you might imagine that's what he thought of himself. And um, he, uh, he said that he only had the energy to do that after his wife died. And so what does that mean? That means that, a lot of his life and energy was dedicated towards his wife. And well, when she disappeared, well, and this is how you deal with tragedy. He, he had to free that energy up. And that's really hard for people because they have all these subroutines and all these things tied and all these imaginary 
ideas tied to these people when they, you know, think about doing things, they think about doing things with them. And so what did Jung do? Well, he reintegrated the energy and then applied it towards a major project. And so you were asking what happened with this. And well, I'd say that I was in my dark wood during my first years of teaching, not understanding my own purpose and being in post um, St. John's or post structured realities, sort of dark wood hell and what is this? This is an acceptance of role and of moving towards meaning because sitting resentfully around doing nothing and criticizing reality just doesn't seem like any fun as an adult. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. I, uh, I was sitting and uh, reading, um, I don't know if you've got around to it yet, The, uh, the Righteous Mind. No. Have you seen that? I just happened to see it at the library at the school where I've been teaching. And so I started reading that. And uh, this is just a funny little anecdote that I wanted to share with you um, to that point purpose. So, so it's like exam week, right? And I'm done with my, with giving my exams for the day. So I really could have left, you know, sure. didn't have to stay at school. I, I, what's that? I probably would have. I'm a lever. <laughs> But then I was like thinking to myself, so well, I know that's the wrong thing to do, right? Like I, I know I'm supposed to stay because, you know, I'm paid to be there all day, all school day. Sure. And right, sure. Of course. Oh, now I understand. Yes. That's what I'm saying. I, I could have left I, and I stayed and I found this book, first of all. So I was like, oh, cool. I've been, you know, meaning to find that book. And so I started reading. It's wonderful. It's great. And so I was reading that. And then this kid, uh, you know, he came over. And he's like, hey, is this seat taken? He clearly wanted to talk. So we started yeah. talking, you know. And he started telling me, you know, like he's trying to decide he's a junior. Should he join the Marines to be with his brother or should he like, you know, go his own route, let his brother do his own thing. And not to get too much into his story, but it was just, it was really moving to me because it was like this, this small decision, you know, I could have, yeah. I could have, I you knew know, it was not the right thing, to do, but it's something great turned out to, to yeah, come out from feeling. And, you know, something I was thinking about earlier, which I think is interesting and supports your point is that. Well, something I just realized, which I'd been trying to realize for years and which people had been telling me is that, well, I thought about my life up until now and I'd lived a life that was a real emotional roller coaster and I had chosen that sort of life. That's a, to some extent a good life to me. Over the last couple of years, I've been sort of steeped in study and not pursuing things which have a ton of emotional valence. And I realized that that's most likely because I had just gotten out of a major relationship mm. and I had actually consciously chosen. I said this out loud and then laughed at myself. No more emotions for two years. <laughs> and then I immediately said back to myself, well, then no meaning. And then uh... this and said this out loud because emotions determine the meaning of a situation, not thought. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thought can only identify what the emotion signifies. Boom. I left my mind and I became a person. Dude, yeah. No, no thought is just a little reflection system built on top of your intuition system, which is a bunch of pattern recognizers. Your emotions are so much deeper down the amygdala and the hippocampus. And I mean, they tell you everything and they've always told us everything. And so the fact that our thinking and you can tell just how simple your thinking and your abstraction system is based on the fact that you can watch cartoons. And I, I do, I don't say that intelligently, I do it too. 
And it's like, oh, yeah. it's, it's so superficial in that it is built on top of everything. I mean, even being a weightlifter, I've blacked out before exerting myself as hard as possible. And what does that mean? Well, that means that my systems were so strained that I couldn't represent reality in the moment that I did that. Which I imagine is what alcohol does to you when it blacks you out, that you have become so poisoned that your body no longer has the necessary resources to support representational memory um, and a representation of reality. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm following you, but, but I think it's interesting though, you know, for all that, the emotions and, and the, the largest part of your life is lived, you know, underneath yes. and, behind and, and maybe in front of uh, reason or whatever you want to call it. It's still that spark of the logos, right? That, that yes. is the thing that gives meaning to all of that. Right. That's so true. Yes, they're, they're, mutual. they're mutually, I mean, into being what is in the being. So logos needs to speak the truth about being. And that's what the Trinity is. So there's a being, and then there's the being spoken into truth, and there's the act of speaking, um, which is why humans are supposed to tell the truth because it brings additional being into reality because truth and being are the same thing, and that's why true beings crave truth, which is what mana is. In, uh, well, so let me push you on this then just to – I mean this is another thing that frustrates me. I, I don't know how to say it exactly. Yes. With, with Jordan Peterson, he's always getting asked by people, so are you a Christian, right? It's a simple question. So it's a uh, rough question, I would say, because, the, the act, because, again, that's in the level of analysis problem, right? Because so if, if, if say, somebody comes up to me and says that I can't, they couldn't talk to me because the Lord is the, is the, the Lord is the spirit of truth for them, and he tells them what is true. Are they inviting me to talk to them and speak the truth? Or are they telling me that there's only one way of truth getting to them and I can't be involved in it? Right, right. To that question of like, say, are you a Christian? They then attempt to constrain you by whatever they believe that question means. So you don't know what you're agreeing to is the problem with answering that question. Even So Peterson, I think, answers it in the way that I would like to answer it in that, well, look at all my obvious behaviors. That's... Most, that's the most that is the clearest indication of what a christian is and in a western culture where all our rules and laws come from the behavioral mindset set by existence with a church structure uh until you know very recently uh we all act like christians if, even if we say we are or not i i i, I appreciate that i suppose and, and i don't and think I, he's trying to cop out on it i don't think he's trying to act like more than he is, but rather he doesn't want to just say something that will then blithely be used as a criticism against him. So just think about it. Like newspapers, people would love for him to say that sort of thing because immediately every commentator who's Christian can have an opinion about him and boom, their voices spring into life. And it's, yeah. well, they can already do that because of Genesis too. So it's, <laughs> it's just for the listeners, he's done 15 lectures on not just Genesis in the Bible. So he's long. Yeah, but it's forgivable, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. We, you know, you gotta, you gotta risk as I constantly tell my students, if, if the pursuit of truth is like archery and that you, you shoot at the target and you keep shooting and your spread gets, 
you know, more and more refined, then, then you're going to make it. You have to make the most amount of errors of anybody to be the best shooter because that means you can endure the pain of making errors in order to refine towards the truth. And that's what speaking is too, I think. And that's why I feel so lucky lecturing for several hours a day, several days a week for the last five years. Um, yeah. This is a loud training regimen. Yeah. Right. yeah. And I, and with the toughest customers I could imagine, high school freshmen and sophomores, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, if you can make it with them, maybe you can make it anywhere. You know that you 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 walk the high school beat. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's uh, it's 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 good to get a chance to talk to other people too. <laughs> just say it. That way. <laughs> you know, it's funny what you said about that kid too. Just something to mention about teachers, and you know, maybe we can close in a minute here um, because this is our first time doing this. You know, we've had some good stuff, but who knows when we'll run out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, just something about being a teacher, and I'd love to just have an entire conversation about things you've learned about human nature due to being a teacher. And I know everybody's interested in that because everybody's interested in teachers because everybody's had a teacher. And, uh, and everybody's had a lot of teachers. And hopefully people have had an interesting teacher. And if they haven't, we'll make up for that now. So what uh, – it's just – the cues that the little humans, the students give you, especially the high school ones, because they're practically adults and people forget how similar and different they are from high schoolers. And they forget how similar they are in terms of all their attitudes and beliefs and many of their thoughts. They, they forget, however, how, how honest and how witty and acerbic uh, a little person can be. How, uh, and when you are constantly exposed to honest humans who are watching you alertly, you learn about yourself very quickly, but you also learn how to pick up on real cues because you're dealing with real situations. You're managing people. And so you have to jump out of your head and get rid of a lot of the false notions about yourself and how things work in reality in order to have a smooth and good learning environment. So if you're too proud and you don't understand certain flaws you have and you don't make certain adjustments, so you're just going to keep having the same problems over and over. So you have to start seeing things for what they actually are. And that often means seeing the many, many, many flaws you have as a person and teacher, um, which has been a wonderful thing about being a teacher because, well, the better, you know, the more you better yourself, the better it is for your students, which is the best reason possible to better yourself um, and has been very good for me. But the fact that you can see little things like that, that you start to see it, like when somebody wants to talk, you know it. And they probably oh, I, are acting like that around you too because – well, they trust you. You're a teacher. You're an adult. Right. And it's, it's interesting seeing how people act like that because they kind of, they're like, like Peterson talks about with the little and the big rat, right? They're like trying to invite you to play. Yeah, it is play. It is. It is. And I just want to, I mean, to, to bring it back to something, I think you said this before we even started recording, but you mentioned that, you know, part of the um, symbol of the Garden of Eden uh, and leaving it is, is that somehow Eve is is instrumental yes. there, right? And it's yes. Adam. It's Adam seeing Eve. It's Adam speaking with Eve, and that kind of give and take. Yes. That it's, it's so, what, so it's funny because I was trying to repeat my initial argument, and so I totally lost my train of thought. And I know I didn't make it near air, which is just deeply unfortunate. But yeah. So I, what I was saying is that it's man's encounter with nature. 
yeah, yeah. conscious because that's the only thing that could make him conscious because it's pure anomaly. It's something you can't deal with. And what do you do when you can't deal with something? Boom, thought, awareness kicks into being. And so it's man's, it is man's encounter with the feminine or rather nature as represented through the feminine that spurs him on to consciousness. And I know Peterson says some very interesting things about this saying, literally speaking, since sexual selection is governed by the women with humans. Um, yeah, right. That's they very- became intelligent first. They ate, uh, they ate from the apple, as it were. They acquired information and that they then selected for intelligent men. And there's sort of an evolutionary arms race between them, which, you know, uh, in terms of positive feedback loops, creating incremental and thus exponential growth at some point, we are a lot smarter than every other creature on the planet by far. Mm. Um, so that seems like a pretty easy fact to see. For all that we know, we are. Now, so one book I read recently, which I just want to throw out there, is uh, uh, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I don't know if sure. you've read that one. Sure, I've read that Okay, but so the right the mice the mice are actually the smartest sure, beings. Sure, for sure. Yeah, but, but you know, I think we're we're thinking metaphorically when we say that sort of thing. So, like, I, I think it. I think we actually have a valid point when we say things like the mice or the 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 dolphins are happier because their being isn't split into two in the way that ours is. Yeah, right, so right. Completely at one with themselves, and so in a Taoist sort of way, you could say that's more intelligent, and that that's a very prudent thing to do. But in terms of actually being top, top of the dominance hierarchy and eating the most amount of different animals ever, <laughs> because if yeah. you think every other predator has what a few things it can eat from, we've eaten everything. We eat everything. <laughs> so that alone is. Uh, uh, most dominance and yeah we can say that it's going to lead to our own destruction but that's not an argument against intelligence because that's no, just no, a argument. i just wanted to say i think it's very important to bear in mind well to be honest i think you know the uh, the, the gist of what i'm trying to say with that is that it's it's in all seriousness um the importance of of, of laughing right at yourself and yes. being right because not, that's when you realize it's all play the play element and and beyond that too to be to be really you know uh serious about it for a sec i think you know that's what you in a way you see in eve or 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 whoever if you're eve you see it in adam or whatever you want to say but you see something that you can imagine is whole and nature and right like what you're what you've lost what you're not and yet it's part of you and it belongs to you and you love it and i think that that love is also a big part of of the trust that you're speaking about with you know um, kids kids trusting you and and wanting to talk and the ability to perceive that is, is something akin to love and i think that that is something that again that peterson is not shy about saying when he's pushed to say it but he doesn't i haven't heard him yet fully articulate that thought i guess and i, I, I would just be because there are many, you know joseph campbell followers and people and <laughs> all this sort of people that are doing this sort of modern modern transformation of protestantism and individualized truth into this pigeon yoga system <laughs> chopra whose opprobrious ideas wouldn't be helpful to a mindless idiot not uh 
Not just just I don't know if you've become aware of this, but uh, the Campbell language about um, about myth is very much pervading. Uh, if I understand it correctly, the, the new Common Core standards. There. Oh, uh, goodness, that's what I need to educate myself on. I've been. I've not yeah. to that. I, gotta say, I haven't looked into it too closely, but in my like anecdotal experience, it sounds an awful lot like they're taking like the hero's journey and basing like a big part of seventh or eighth grade English on just like just that. And it's so mm. I don't know what make of that what you will. But yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting, too. It's funny. The thing about the, the hero's journey is that if anybody tries to teach it according to structure, they're going to miss the entire essence of it. Yeah, yeah, it's too much. Too much. And so how do you, uh, there's not a rule book to it. It's you got to go out and face that, which you feel going to be totally different from everybody else. So you actually just have to face what you fear. And that's the encounter with nature because you encounter your own limitations when you face that, which you fear. Um, it determines you, it shows you what you are. And when you see what you are, you can actually grow from that. And so when you encounter the smallness of your being, well, what can you do? Go out of it and then become a far stronger or, and more, uh, you know, valuable being in terms of being, you might say, because of course everybody is equal in terms of rights and actually in terms of, uh, being part of a whole community, yes. which is incredible. As Dante says of the souls on the moon, some shine brighter than others. And that be objectively true. The history books aren't full of everybody. Yeah. So, you know, I certainly appreciate having the, the freedom of speech to, to get to say all of these things and uh, to hear all of this disagree and, you know, build on and whatever. Constantly update ourselves so that we don't need a king dictating to us rules and why we don't need a law for everything, especially any laws governing free speech, because the second we have a law governing free speech, well, all we can do is lie. Yeah. 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 You know, that's what I talk about with my students uh, about art and poets. I say they can use whatever language they want and they can paint whatever they want because they're artists, they express truth. And so, has the right to censor them well man there's there's a lot more to say about this stuff like i i, I sort of am tempted now to get on, the, get on the noble lie and get on the 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 poetry and all that stuff being taken out yeah, of the exactly what you called in about next time <laughs> i'll see yeah but let's make this a, a regular thing if we can and we'll do it again i'd love to have you on wes and i hope at the very least our friends enjoy hearing this and maybe they'll call in and comment and well yeah. Yeah, actually it's a performative act as far as I'm concerned I, I'm just happy to have gotten to talk to you and uh, well, I appreciate you calling in and I well we'll figure out how to get off this so listeners this has been episode 016 with Wesley Chance from Washington we thank him for being on and we're going to try and get off here and if it's a little awkward well first times are always awkward no. <laughs> All right. Take care. Till next.